Today we're going to look at one of the most inspiring stories in David's life. I entitled it Offense of Grace. Offense of Grace. Because here we see David no longer the hunted, but a hunter. But he is a different hunter. He was a holy hunter who pursued his prey with grace. The reason I decided to use more active expression for grace is because often we think Christian virtues in passive ways. For instance, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, Oswald Sanders says, Often we think of a patience in passive terms, as if patient person is utterly submissive and half asleep. But this version of a patience needs a biblical corrective. In James 5, 7 and 8, being a patient for Christ's return is compared with a patience required of a farmer waiting for his crop. James 5, 7 says, Be patient, then brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield this valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The farmer, while patiently waiting for the harvest, is also diligently working to weed the fields and help his precious fruit grow. Both farmers and believers are meant to act even while waiting patiently. Patience is not passive activity. It requires a proactive posture. Just like that, authentic biblical grace or mature grace is also proactive and today's story almost aggressive. Today's story tells us about David's another forgiveness of us all. Initially, when I was preparing our David series, The King in the Wilderness, I was going to skip today's story because we already saw David's gracious forgiveness of Saul in earlier story. It's almost, so today's story is almost deja vu, and you will see a lot of deja vu, but the slight differences in today's story is very significant and too important to skip. The major difference uh, between the uh, chapter 24 and then chapter 26 of 1 Samuel is this. In the cave, uh, uh, the first forgiveness was accidental. In the cave of En Gedi, Saul came to David's cave relieving him, to relieve himself and David faced Saul instantly and incidentally. David was not prepared for that encounter, yet David forgave Saul. Do you remember our lesson that David refused to be an opportunist and chose to be obedient to God? In Samuel 26, today's story, David's response was not accidental, but intentional. This encounter was very purposeful. So let me read how today's story begins. So uh, 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 1. The Ziphite went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakila, which faces Jeshmon? So Saul went down to the desert of Zip 
with its 3,000 selected Israelite troops to search their force, David. Who are the Zephites? They were another clan of Judah. They were same tribesmen as David. Yet Ziphites were acting more like a bounty hunters than brothers of the same tribe. They went all the way north to Gibeah, the headquarters of Saul, and gave him an actionable intelligence against David. As we know, this was the second time the Ziphite betrayed David. The first time was 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 19. No wonder David felt so lonely and angry in some of his psalms. So Saul again mobilized his elite 3,000 soldiers to pursue David. Verse 3. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah facing Jashmon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw Saul had followed him there, he sent out a scout and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. The place, now look at me, now the place David was staying was called Jashmon, which in Hebrew means wasteland. And usually there, there was not much human traffic in the wasteland or wilderness. Thus when David heard there was an army of 3,000, it should be, have been very obvious to David that Saul returned to hunt him. But today, David sent his scout to confirm the report. Why? Because David was uh, double-checking if it was really Saul. Because the last time, David and Saul made a covenant before God. They promised each other not to harm the other's family. They made a treaty of a peace with the oath before God. If you look at the 1 Samuel 24, verse 22, yes, Saul came back, means he broke a sacred covenant he made with David. And here is an important lesson, observation we need to duly note. Saul did not care about his promise with David because he did not care about his covenant with God. When someone doesn't care about God, such person doesn't care about others either. Saul was grateful to David for, uh, uh, for sparing his life before, but that gratitude was emotional and short-lived. And they, because he's still selfish and at core, and this real allegiance was his self-interest, not God. Such a self-centered person can be trusted. Now, David has to face his soul's relentless hunt, hunting again. And here, David's second encounter and forgiveness of a soul shows us picture of a mature grace. I say mature grace. And I want to see three characteristics of a mature grace uh, or beautiful grace. So let me read a verse 5. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had a camp. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. Saul was lying inside a camp where the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, who will go down in the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul, lying asleep inside the camp. 
with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and soldiers were lying around him. Now, this time, however, the initiative was on David's hand. Saul and his army lost the advantage of a surprise, and they were exposed. The element of surprise, the great military advantage, was in David's hand. The hunted became a hunter, and he found the prey. And from his spot, David could see Saul's resting place, surrounded by the whole army, with Abner, the commander, guarding him. And David decided to do something daring. He decided to go down to Saul's camp. And David asked two of his warriors to join him, Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai the son of Zerah. Ahimelech was a non-Israelite. He was Hittite, descendant of a Hittite kingdom, which was known for its cavalry in the ancient world. They were nomads from Anatolia. And today's Armenians and then Kurds are related to them. By the way, this shows David's band of brothers was an eclectic group of different ethnic people. Another famous Hittite warrior in David's army that we see later was Uriah, the tragic husband of Bathsheba. Once again, we must recognize that there is no pure race. Even monolithic, mono-ethnic people like Israelite, they are not uh, uh, ethnically monolithic. So whoever people that claim to be a pure race, you know, these are pure race people, including, I'm, I'm talking about Koreans, Japanese, Han Chinese, whoever, you know, get a grip. Everybody is mixed. Just you don't know. Ahimelech did not take the David's invitation because that's not why he joined the David's community. He probably said, uh, Lord, Lord David, uh, what you ask sounds a very dangerous mission. All I want is to survive just one more day. I'm sorry, I'm out. That's not what I'm signed for. On the other hand, Abishai accepted the call. Abishai was a brother of Joab. Actually, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, they are the nephews of David. Their mother, Zeruiah, is David's sister, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 2. And they were fierce warriors, and sometimes too eager to fight. Now, as we will see soon again, David was not taking this risky mission to finish Saul, but to forgive Saul once again. Why didn't David just run away or keep evading Saul and his army? We don't know. Perhaps David felt sorry for his followers because their lives are jeopardized due to you know, his relationship with Saul. We don't know for sure. But one thing is clear that David is clear was that David never intended to kill Saul. And this mission is a mission of mercy, not a mission of malice. And here we must recognize the first characteristic of grace. Grace is risk-taking. When you want to give a grace somebody, you have to take a risk. 
In order to get to Saul, David has to pass through 3,000 soldiers. He has to tiptoe around the 3,000 soldiers. What if one of them had an insomnia? I'm praying for a pastor who had an insomnia for last, you know, two and a half, last, you know, several years. I mean, this poor pastor has an insomnia. He said he sleeps no more than, you know, two, three hours a night. And what about the uh, diarrhea? Because uh, I know in camping, diarrhea happens a lot. Yeah, ask me about that later. I, I, you know, I've seen it. And, uh, you know, it takes only one person to detect David or Abishai. It takes only one light slipper to hear their steps. And then 3,000 will be alerted. And it just takes one person to ruin David's plan and much more finish his life. To forgive Saul, David was risking his life. To help Saul, David put himself in the most vulnerable position in his life. So once again, grace giving is a serious business. We can share grace with others without risking ourselves and without vulnerability. Let me uh, share a, a, a story of a great risk-taking reconciliation. You know, I have uh, uh, my own uh, bucket lists. You know, I'm getting old, and one day I want to travel to the places that I wanted to go. And the, one of the places that I want to check out is uh, I want to visit the St. Patrick Cathedral in Dublin, Ireland. The St. Patrick Cathedral is a national uh, cathedral. It's, uh, it's the largest and tallest and most majestic do we have a picture of uh, St. Patrick Cathedral? Yeah, it's, uh, it's built in 1191. And the reason I want to visit this cathedral is not simply because it's uh, well-known, but actually because it has a famous door inside the cathedral. It's called the Door of a Reconciliation. And let me tell you the story behind this door. In 1492, two prominent Irish families, the Omans and Kildars, were in the midst of a bitter feud. And the Earl of Kildar, uh, he's, he, he was winning the war, and Sir James Butler, Earl of Ormond, and his followers took the refuge in the chapter house of St. Patrick's Cathedral, bolting themselves in. As the seas a war on, Earl of Kildar, uh, J, uh, uh, he realized that the feuding was uh, foolish. Here were two families worshiping the same God in the same church, living in the same country, yet trying to kill each other. So he called out to Sir James and they sent him an inscription in Old English, undertook on his honor that we should receive no villainy. Simply means, I give you my word, come on out, and let's, fin let's stop fighting. But Ormond did not respond out of some kind of a further treachery. So Kildard decided to do this. 
He seized his spear, cut a hole in the door, took off his armor, and thrust his hand through, and it was grasped by another hand inside the church. And door was opened, and two men embraced, and the family feud ended. From Kildar's noble gesture, now look at me, the expression, chancing one's arm was born. So Irish people, they use the word chancing arms. So today, David was chancing his life to give a grace to Saul. So let's see what happened next. Verse 8. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, let me pin him down to the ground and with a one thrust of the spear, and I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbids that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that, water jug that were near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. David and Abishai successfully penetrated into Saul's military camp without being detected. And verse 12 tells us the secret of success. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them in deep sleep. God supported and blessed David for this risk-taking mission of grace. Whenever we go for grace-sharing, God's special presence and protection guides us. Here, God gave 3,000 soldiers, including the guards, uh, guards, into deep sleep and disarmed them completely. In the Bible, God used a deep sleep to accomplish his special works. If you look at the Genesis chapter 2, 21, So Lord God caused a man to fall into deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took the one of the man's ribs and closed up the uh, place with the flesh. God created Eve while Adam was put in deep sleep. Later in Genesis 15, 12, Abraham saw God's covenant making walk while he was dreaming in a deep sleep. In today's story, the narrator is telling the readers and us this risky business was a miracle of God. God was an invisible yet active participant in this operation of grace. Do David and Abishai think it was because of their own skill that they were able to avoid the detection? Are they even aware of the miraculous nature of the event? We are not sure if they knew it. But we knew, we know for sure, because a narrator told, tells us so. Once again, when we serve God and His grace, we don't see the specifics, specifics. Only we see only the general principles. But God is with His people in every step of the operation of grace. Now imagine, 
the moment when David saw Saul in a close range. Here was a foolish, irrational, mean, bad thing who returned David's kindness with the evil and who made David's life so miserable in the wilderness. This one menacing king was now sleeping like a baby, snoring like a deaf. You don't know. Also, you are not sure whether Saul would change his mind. And verse 8, Abishai said to David, Today God delivered your enemy into your hand. This is a second deja vu moment of the story. This is just what David's men had whispered to David in the cave of Engedi when Saul came into the cave alone. And they, and then in the and then Abishai he said also this: Please let me pin him to the uh, to the earth ground with one stroke of a spear. I will not strike him twice. In the cave, David's men suggested that David should deed and they eliminate the Saul. And David didn't listen, obviously. So Abishai was not going to make the same mistake again. Abishai volunteered, David, Lord, you don't, you don't have to do this. I'll do it for you. You know, I will, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll get rid of your enemy. And here, once again, we notice the difference. In the cave, Dave, David, did not uh, did this, had a spirit of Saul's life with the impression that Saul seemed to renounce his hostility toward the David. But as we know, Saul didn't change. Saul's hostility ceased just momentarily. He came back, same as before. So here David now learned that Saul was not going to change much. The one thing Saul was Saul changed so far was his promise of a peace. David know that his mercy achieved nothing when it comes to Saul. The fact that David learned Saul's inflexible selfishness makes this situation in chapter 26 very different from the cave situation in chapter 24. What did David do this time? You know, Abishai's proposal sounds more reasonable than urging of his men in the cave. Because of a soul's proven, proven stubbornness and belligerence. And here, David doesn't have to dirty his hand. All he needs to do, just close his eyes. Or not. Simple not will do. And here is a second characteristic of a grace. Grace, when we try to dispense the grace of God, there is always a temptation. There is always temptation of a shortcut, temptation of a taking matter into our hands, temptation to take a human measure, not a divine measure. So second characteristic of a grace is this. Grace resists temptation of a shortcut. Grace resists the temptation of a shortcut. So David told the Abishai, do not destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the lost anointed and be guiltless? David resisted the suggestion and the temptation of his royal warrior Abishai. 
Like a Christ rejected the temptation of his beloved disciple Peter at Caesarea Philippi. Again, David called Saul the Lord's anointed, meaning David always sees Saul in the lens of God. Do you remember the last two weeks ago we shouted that my enemy is a God's enduring child? Here David resisted the temptation of a shortcut with the same perspective. But this time, very interestingly, David added, not only rejected, but he replied with uh, his own reasoning. Look at the verse you know, 10. The Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and per perish. The Lord himself will strike him. By this, David once again declares, Vengeance is God's business and divine prerogative, and he doesn't have to or nor he wants to meddle at all, meddle with it at all. God is the best judge and definitely better than any human judge. I don't have to worry about God's justice to anybody, especially someone like Saul. And then David said two future scenarios about Saul. He said Saul will either die of natural causes or tragically in battle. This is something new that David said here that he didn't in the cave. Where do you think? Now look at me. Where do you think David learned this? David learned this from his encounter with Nabal and Abigail. In the previous chapter, David learned the patience and restraint of the Pass to God's plan, best plan. While violence only gives more violence, David restrained himself and relied on God's judgment, and his trust in God was honored. Nabal, the miniature of a miniature version of Saul, was struck by God, and everything Nabal had, especially his beautiful wife, Abigail, became David's partner. David resisted the temptation of a shortcut with a previous obedience and experience of a God's goodness and greatness. And here, you and I must learn an important biblical principle. How do we resist temptation? Do you know how we can overcome temptation? In order to overcome temptation, you and I must build a Muscle of a faith with obedience. Let me repeat that. We need to build a muscle of a faith with obedience. Muscle does not grow overnight. Muscle requires steady daily exercise. Someone's, likewise, spiritual muscle does not grow overnight. Somebody said, there is no instant sanctification. I really like that statement. There is no instant sanctification. All sanctification of God's people is a gradual and daily. Because sanctification comes from our relationship with God. Our daily walk with God is a source of our sanctification. Sanctification is not some kind of power game as some charismatic you know, Christians you know, imagine. 
There are some Christians who say that uh, you get a second baptism or baptism of the Holy Spirit. They, they throw these biblical terms without understanding the meaning. And they say, once you get the power of God, the temptation is behind you. Don't ever buy those kind of uh, you know, wrong theology. Sanctification comes from our daily walk with God. There is no instant sanctification. Our victory over temptation comes from our daily small obedience and walk with God. One of the blessings I'm experiencing in this unprecedented pandemic is my prayer life and focus. You know, there's not much I can do for church and uh, people that I love and God placed in my life except praying. You know, Forrest, since we, we had a... I actually kind of complained to God about this. Since last summer till December, we had a, 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 a growth spurt. Did you know that we grew about 30% the second half of the last year? And then also beginning of the first quarter of this year, we had another 30%. So we are in the kind of role. We are in the kind of growth sport. Like, uh, you know, those uh, 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 teenagers, you know, those uh, little boys that became a, you know, kind of tall guy. That's what, you know, we are experiencing last one year. You know, last nine months, to be exactly. In the Easter, we had a highest attendance, close to 160 and we were in a kind of a, a, in the, in a, in a growth spurt and all of a sudden, bam, we are hit by the pandemic that paralyzed everybody. Many pastors and churches were in panic because there is no church manual for this kind of pandemic. You know, Christian churches, they fought bravely in previous pandemic. But those manuals are totally useless that this pandemic, COVID-19, because the best thing we can do as a non-medical uh, professionals is just stay away from each other. That's the best we can do. We cannot go into the other people who are struggling and help them out physically and uh, materially. Human contact is the most dangerous. And we need to reduce the human contact as much with the social distancing, all kinds of spiritual distancing came. And the people are suffering from mental health and who, you know, financial difficulty and the relational, you know, conflict intensified by the pandemic. I was, I didn't know what to do. No seminary, no PhD program, I mean training ever prepared for me this. So I was crying and I was praying. And then, uh, you know, a uh, few months ago, a couple months ago, more than a couple months ago, I, uh, I saw uh, a YouTube about uh, one Korean, South Korean pastor that I respect very much. And uh, I didn't know he had a cancer. And the last one year, he was a fight going through the very tough treatment with his cancer. And amazingly, he started daily devotion for cancer patients and his family while he himself is going through. And literally, I could see his, uh, his emaciated, 
you know, face and the struggle and his losing weight. And then I checked that, you know, some of his daily devotions and I can see that he's struggling mightily. His voice doesn't sound as before. And that challenged me. And that's why we started Daily Breath nine weeks ago. And this Friday, we finished the first book on the uh, Second Corinthians. And I want to tell you, Daily Breath really kept my prayer life and focused more centered than ever on God. And I want to share with you, we have a faithful uh, prayer warriors in daily breath. So every morning, 14 to 16. And then I heard from uh, Alex Parker, there are like uh, five, six people also checking out uh, in the podcast. So let me ask you, those of you participating uh, in a daily breath, just, uh, you know, give me your reaction. Just check your reaction part, you know, reaction uh, uh, touch on your, uh, on the Zoom and show me, I mean, show us that those of you participating in daily breath. Because the reason I, fo I, I, fo I, I ask you to do this is we have a, day, a daily breath, you know, people, we becoming a daily prayer station for forest. So if you, I know you share prayer requests with our house church. That's wonderful. But on the particular day, you have a special job interview, special you know, medical appointment, and whatever special test, whatever, shout out. Text me, email me about your prayer on that day or day before. We'll pray for you. We'll pray it out for you. And it gave me such a comfort that I'm not just praying people but I'm praying everyone in their, you know, in their urgent and prayer request. So now let me go to the uh, uh, speech, of, uh, speech of David. That's what the uh, longest part of this, once again, this story, and that's what the biblical writers want us to focus. So verse 13, David crossed over the other side and stood up on the hill of uh, some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out the army and the Abner, the son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who called the king? David said, You are a man, aren't you? Who is like you in Israel? Then why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What have you done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die. Because you did not guard your master, Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? David spoke first to Abner, and he chastised the commanding general of Saul's army, Saul's confident for failing to protect the king. And here he said, you and your man must die. In literally, in Hebrew, that means you are sons of death. You are sons of death. And uh, remember, if you remember, earlier in 1 Samuel 20, 31, Saul said the same thing to David. He said, as long as son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you, uh, Jonathan, nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me. For he must die. So Saul called David 
son of death earlier. And then so David is, you know, David heard this story about Saul calling him son of David and is repeating here. And uh, he was, you know, implying that Saul, King Saul, you call me son of David, but real, I mean, son of, son of, son of death, but the real sons of death is the people that you trust. The Abner and his guard, they're the really sons of death. They're the one who endangered your life. I'm a son of life to you. I mean life to you, not a death. And David continued in verse 17. Saul recognized that David's voice said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is my lord, the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What, are, what wrong have I, am I guilty of? Now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's word. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, the people done it, may they be accursed before the Lord. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Here, David pleads his innocence and implores the king to consider how irrational the king's obsession with capturing David. He argues, David argues that whether the source of Saul's delusional action was God or humans. Either way, he said, King, I'm harmless. I'm trivial like a flea. I'm of no danger to you, just like a flea to you, or human. David was saying that I'm innocent, I'm insignificant to you. Now let's look at verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you consider my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool, have been terribly wrong. Saul admitted his guilt and make more concessions than he did before. Here Saul said, I have sinned. I have sinned. I believe this is the only time Saul really felt the weight of his words. You know, Saul said that I've seen before in 1 Samuel chapter 15 in front of a prophet Samuel. But that, when that was not really sincere, I think he said it as a lip service. That was more like a pretense for political damage control because Samuel was rejecting King Saul in front of you know, Israel because of his disobedience to destroy or annihilate the Amalekite and the you know, uh, Prophet Samuel was walking out of, uh, you know, the Israel's camp and, the, you know, Saul, Saul needed Samuel's, you know, public support for his, uh, you know, his authority. So it was a pious public stunt. But today, when Saul said, I have sinned, I really believe Saul meant every word of it. And here, listen to me. 
Saul saw his sin in the suffering servant David and David's honest, truthful speech. And here is third and third characteristic of grace. Grace repeats forgiveness to unworthy and unreliable. Grace repeat. Grace doesn't just give, repeat forgiveness, unworthy and unreliable. Grace gives a forgiveness not only once, not only for the first time, not only when I feel like, not only you know, when the other person you know, uh, qualifies, but over and over again, as long as the other person needs it, grace extends forgiveness over and over. David forgave Saul not because Saul was a new person or Saul's promise is really, you know, is, is, a, is a concrete. David knew Saul very well. He knew that Saul can change his mind anytime, is a murderous envy will return anytime. You know, uh, David didn't forgive Saul not because of a better future or a commentator quips that because David is a pacifist. Obviously, David is not a pacifist. He's a warrior. But David is a different kind of warrior. David was a holy warrior. You have to recognize that David forgave Saul because of his trust in God. And for David, forgiveness is not a utilitarian you know, ethics. It's good for me. No, it's more than that. Because the other person needs it. That's why David gave the forgiveness. And this reminds me of uh, Matthew 18, 21, when Peter came to Jesus and asked the Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? You know, Peter doubled it. The usual maximum forgiveness the Jewish people exercised three times. He doubled and added more. He made a perfect forgiveness. Seven times forgive. And also, this is a talking about, he said, the forgiving not a stranger. Sometimes forgiving stranger is easy because you don't see them again. But what about forgiving your sister and brother? Why do you think Peter said repeated forgiveness here? Because our family members, they make the same mistake over and over again. During our uh, breakout fellowship, I wanted to share what is the one thing your family members, you know, uh, 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 make a mistake over and over again? What is the one thing that irks you and that you have to forgive over and over again? Because we all have it, especially in this pandemic. Yes, I do have it. And I love to share that with you, whoever in my, uh, you know, uh, breakout fellowship. David. forgave Saul, not because he's qualified, but because he needs it. Now let me bring our conclusion. Verse 22. Here is a king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I value your life today, may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. 
Then the soul said to David, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. Saul's parting word here, You will do great things and surely triumph, are more prophetic than Saul could have ever known, and certainly more than he intended. This is the last meeting between two anointed kings of Israel. David went his way with the blessing and protection of Yahweh, Saul returning home only with a only with a only as a king only in name. Now, look at what David said about himself. He said, "May the Lord reward everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness, righteousness and faithfulness." And we all know that righteousness and faithfulness. Are two two fundamental characteristics. Uh, two fundamental characters of God. Our God is righteous and faithful. Old Testament. There are so many verses about that. God over and over again is righteous and faithful. And David said, "Lord, I faithfully kept my duty for my king. Lord, I." Recognize that I forgave him because I trusted your your judgment, your ultimate vengeance. Recognize my righteousness. Later in Psalm one forty three one, this is what David said: "Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief." David was saying, "God, I try my best with the faithfulness and righteousness. So listen, so help me with your faithfulness and righteousness." So let's wrap up. Grace is risk taking. Grace resists temptation of a shortcut. Grace repeat forgiveness to unworthy and unreliable. And this characteristic of a grace. Were completely fulfilled and totally embodied by another king, the true Davidic king, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom people call Son of David and Messiah. Today's story ultimately reveals the grace of Jesus Christ to give us a grace. Jesus came down to us. This world in the form of a baby. Who else is a more vulnerable than a baby? Almighty God became a powerless, impotent, helpless, vulnerable baby to give us God's grace. Our God is a risk-taking God. Our God is a vulnerable. And just like David was tempted in the wilderness. Our Lord was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. He was offered the whole world without cross, but our Lord resisted and overcame temptation with a trust in God and obedience to the cross. As David repeatedly forgave Saul, our Lord repeatedly forgave us on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are asking for, what they are they are doing. 
You know Jesus' prayer on the, on the cross? In the Greek text, He was praying. That means He prayed over and over and over again. I bet He prayed new, innumerable, innumerable times, incalculable times on the cross. And here is the difference between Jesus and all other kings in the world. Even David. David was great today, but as we know, he failed later. His righteousness and faithfulness failed later. But our God, our King, Jesus never failed us in extending and embracing us, His grace. Unlike any king in this world, Jesus did not shed the blood of His enemies for His throne. Actually, He shed His own blood for His enemies. He's the rebels like you and me. He's the only king in the history who came to serve and sacrifice his love for his subject. With Christ, righteousness and forgiveness and faithfulness is complete and overflowing everyone who calls on his name. Let us call on his name. Let's pray.